This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, Canada and York Region helping victims of the quake in Turkey and Syria, celebrating Black History Month then and now, and creating an inclusive workplace. But we begin with the turmoil at Toronto City Hall. After easily winning a third term as mayor last October, promising another four years of stability of a different kind as we emerge from the pandemic, John Tory shocked, stunned, and took by surprise even the most hardened political aficionados when he announced he was stepping down as mayor because of an extramarital affair. Joining us now with the rise and fall of John Tory and what could be next for our city is the editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun, Adrian Batra. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us, Adrian. It's great to be with you, Anne. So, in your vast experience, and particularly in the political arena, was there anything that could have prepared you for what John Tory said a week ago? I don't think so, and considering how long I've been in the hallowed halls of different levels of government, I would think at this point nothing would shock me anymore. And, and of course, many of your, your audience knows who my previous boss was, Rob Ford. Nothing shocked me. You know, there was so much happening at that time. But what we all expected from John Tory was that stability, was sort of that even-keeled, very mild um, uh, uh, governing and here we have it um you know the the no good and, and no good is coming from a, a press conference at 8 30 at night so yeah that that was you know the red flag right 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 away look there's a number of us in the media who had been hearing some rumors there were things swirling around so you know we're all looking into it and then of course you know to the, to the credit of the toronto star they they came out with the with the story and initially broke the story and we saw that stunning resignation i can tell you um, I can tell you, up until the moment that uh, the, the the mayor started speaking, at, when he went to the podium at at City Hall in the in the mayor's protocol office, up to that moment, no one, even in his inner circle, was a hundred percent sure. We were, you know, we were all communicating with people. We're like, what's going on? What's he? What's he going to do? I think that in his mind, he had decided that it, he's going to resign because I think John Tory sort of comes from a bit of an old school thought. You know, you you make a mistake, you take accountability, you take responsibility, and ultimately, um, he resigns. Uh, so I think I think we were were we were all, and I even think some of his team might have even been surprised by 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 what he said on Friday night. Adrian, what do you think precipitated the timing of this announcement? Was mm-hmm. it just that that it was closing in on him, and he just said, "That's it. I've just got to come clean with this." What was it that was pushing him toward this? So there's a lot of schools of thought with respect to this. If you listen to the mayor's words carefully in the statement that he read. He said the affair ended recently. Well, mm. what was that? Two weeks ago? Was yep. it when media started making inquiries? Was it, in, like, when was that? So, so that's one thing. And then the other thing that he said was he went to the integrity commissioner. Well, when did you do that? But here's, here's there's, there's far too many questions that, that remain. For example, he ran for third term, and knowing that this was hanging over his head, because we know that the affair with the junior staffer was going on during the course of the pandemic. Um, he ran for a third term. There would have been people around him that were aware of it. So why did he go for a third term, knowing that this sort of sort of Democles is hanging over your head and could come out at any moment? And uh, look, we're not so Puritan in this day and age that, you know, affairs happen, marriages break up. That's, that's, that happens. The, 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 the questionable nature and the questionable judgment of this was, it was a junior staff member, so the power dynamic exists. Yeah. But why is it, uh, why now? I, I don't have a good answer to that. I, I expect, you know, over the course of some time, we, we may find out more information. I, I just don't know at this point. All I know is the mayor did not decide to come clean until the media was starting to ask questions. And, and so, so what, was, what does that say to you? And what does that say to the citizens of Toronto who are watching all of this, that he made the confession because he was pushed to it? Yeah. Well, it's not the first time it's happened, right? I mean, yeah. politics is, uh, can sometimes be a messy, messy affair, so to speak. And so, you know, John Tory is not the first person to have to capitulate or admit to something when when um, it's about to go public. So I I don't know if there is, um, you know, a real salient answer to that. 
right now. I know John Tory for a long time. I know that he's a, he's a, he's a hardworking man, and we thank him for for the incredible amount of service he's done to our city and our on our province. But I think that there um, just came a point when, with all the chips being laid out, the 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 junior staffer, the power dynamic the uh, arguably a violation of some sort of code of conduct that's too yet to be determined he, he had no choice but to resign so, so here's my question and it's a broad question in this day and age with social media with the savvy and the skills of reporters uh why would someone in power ever think that they could get away with this that's a fantastic question <laughs> i think you know you and I have been in journalism for a long time. There is sort of a, uh, there's part of what we do in, the, in an unwritten rule that we, we let them have, like the personal lives, we try to stay away from some of that, right? Like it's, there's a, it, 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 American style politics is a bit different in terms of the coverage with respect to personal lives, families, et cetera. When it came to the reporting of former Mayor Rob Ford, the goalposts moved, I, I think. The, the, there was a change in perspective on leaving the, 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 the political member's personal life out of it, and, and we actually started covering it more. I, uh, look, we know that uh, John Tory had not been in the family home for some time, maybe living somewhere near City Hall. It's possible someone saw them. And, uh, and, and to your point about, you know, everybody's got a camera, everybody's got, uh, you know, the, the ability to report on something. Why would you try to to get uh, away with this? Yeah. Why would you even uh, in, embark upon that? I can't comment on the affairs of the heart. This is the, the pandemic was very challenging for each and every one of us in our own way. Obviously, the mayor had his um, his own uh, challenges too, and and found uh, some comfort in in, in a relationship. Um, highly questionable obviously but again i'm not here to cast moral judgment on anybody what i am here to to suggest and to talk about is the fact that the the judgment of the the, the mayor is is like it or not is held to a higher standard and in this instance john tory failed tremendously right now as we are in the weekend, so we're in, we've seen the first full week of the, the, the fall of John Tory. We saw the rise over the past eight plus years. There is this groundswell of support for him from some of his council members, from the citizens of Toronto. There have been polls that have been, been put out and it's kind of 50-50. You know, some are saying stay and some are saying go, but it's pretty evenly split. But we're also hearing from people like Premier Doug Ford. I know that Chrystia Freeland uh, on the federal level was suppo- supposedly had weighed in on this, but but her office has said earlier this week, nope, she has no comment on this whatsoever. Are you surprised at at the drumbeats that are we're hearing right now about stay, stay, stay? Well, even in my own circles uh, amongst folks that don't follow this daily like you and I do, a lot of people are like, why did he resign? Yeah, affairs happen, things happen. Why did he have to resign? You know, the city is carrying on uh, it, it has no direct impact on my personal life what's going on in the mayor's personal life so why did he have to resign and you know that's a very legitimate question for doug ford for premier ford because of the mayor, the strong mayor power mm-hmm. um, uh, legislation that he passed last year and basically handed that over to john tory miss tory was the only one that could introduce the city budget so he had to stay on for that yep. and there was very significant issues and big weighty issues that the city of toronto is dealing with crime uh, homelessness, uh, lack of shelter, uh, like the increase, significantly increased taxes. So we've got big issues, um, not the least of which was increasing our police budget. The concern, of course, is that the, the, the left on council, who was very vocal, very loud, and very organized, that they would then be able to, you know, mess around with the budget and take away some of the investments that we need, say, in law enforcement. So John Tory had to stick around to do, to do the strong um, to do the to do the budget because according to the legislation he's the only one that can actually introduce it so you I can understand it from that perspective but just back to Premier Ford for a moment it puts him in a bit of a sticky situation because he ostensibly handed these powers over to John Tory right and and those trans- powers are not transferable so Premier Ford it's in Premier Ford's best interest 
for Mayor Tor- for John Tory to have st- st- uh, stayed around and to continue on with that good relationship that the province and the um, and the municipal government has forged. So that I can see it from that perspective, and I've no doubt there are many many people around um, John Tory that are saying stay stay stay, but as equal amount saying you said you're going to go, you've lost your credibility, you have to go. Adrian, is there more to this story? Do you think that we aren't seeing yeah. or not re- yes you say <laughs> i say i have to say yes because just by virtue of how this has all unfolded how we still don't have so many unanswered questions and i certainly know that there's uh, my my journal reporters are, are working on you know talking to their sources and, and seeing what more there is and frankly i think john tory wants to spare himself the city and his family any further embarrassment um, so, uh, you know, often it's good to just air it all out, let all the laundry come out. Uh, I say yes quickly because just the history dictates that there is. It is entirely possible that this is the end of it. I just, I still have, I, there's still way too many question marks. And in your mind's eye, and if you don't mind saying it, what do you think could be the additional part of this story? Well, and now I'm just purely speculating. Yeah. I, it, it would in circle. It would surround in, in all around his his personal life. Perhaps he had made decisions um, with his with his wife that that were difficult, and uh, and perhaps there was pressure that he needed to end this relationship. I, I, who knows? Um, you know, we we uh, have not named this this young woman. Um, so the, the fact that the integrity commissioner is going to uh, be doing an investigation, you know, that puts another sort of, uh, a lot of people in an uncomfortable position to answer questions about who knew what and when there's questions surrounding her, her, when she left the office of the mayor, how did she get her other job? So there's a lot of things that in, in that regard, I think are yet to come out, but the, but the why now was. I suspect purely uh, driven by by uh, you know the, the family and 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 within the personal side saying end it or other things are going to change in in your personal life. What do you think now will be John Tory's legacy? Sadly, right now it's that you know the mayor of the largest city in the country had an affair with a junior staffer and he had to resign. That's the legacy right now. I think over time there is an opportunity and and um, just like for others that uh, history will rewrite to the fact that John Tory, to his credit, you know, he stabilized municipal government uh, and that he brought some sanity back to, to City Hall after some many tumultuous years uh, and that uh, for the most part he, he has uh, done, a, done a decent enough job uh, for the City of Toronto. That's what we know he wants, wants the legacy to be, but right now we're not there. Hmm. Editor-in-Chief, the Toronto Sun, Adrian Batra, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. It was my pleasure, Anne. Thank you for having me. After the break, the first African-Canadian woman elected to the House of Commons. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. In December of 1995, the House of Commons officially recognized February as Black History Month in Canada following a motion introduced by the Honourable Jean Augustine, the first African-Canadian woman ever to be elected to Parliament and be appointed to Cabinet. The House of Commons, by the way, carried the motion unanimously and, as they say, the rest is history. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined now by the incomparable Jean Augustine with a look at the past, the present, and the future of Black History Month here in Canada. Canada. Welcome, Jean, to the show. It's a, an honor and a privilege to have you with us. Well, thank you so much, Anne. And also, I want to compliment you on your many, many years of uh, community uh, communicating uh, with community and making sure that um, that as Canadians, we are all moving forward 
uh, with uh, positive messages. Well, you are the leader in this, and I follow the leader, that's for sure. <laughs> so, Jean, let me ask you, back in 1995, when all of this was going on, the, the, the genesis of Black History Month in Canada, what was the conversation like then when it came to equality, diversity, inclusion, and everything else that you champion today? And there was no conversation around diversity and equity and, and inclusion. The conversation at the time, I was elected, by the way, in 1993, uh, got to the House of Commons with uh, the federal liberals, with two new political parties. One was Preston Manning and uh, the Reform Party, and the other was the Bloc, um, the Bloc Québécois. The conversation at the time was all about debt and deficit, all about the free trade agreement, softwood lumber, ice cream, yogurt. Those were the discussions. Those were financial, um, you know, the opposition questions around the fact that Canada was going down the drain in a, uh, like a, a third world country. Yeah. And so, you know, the issue of uh, social, um, social justice issues, the issues of who we were and who we are as Canadians, those were not front and center of any discussion. Interesting how time has changed, but a lot of that has to do with you. Today, the discussions are open, they're frequent, but are they making a difference? Yes. Yes, we um, have moved. We've moved the conversations. We have looked at uh, the entire... Uh, nature of Canadian society. We have put on the table and have emphasized uh, the amendments that we made to our Charter of Rights and Freedom. We've looked at human rights uh, codes and, uh, and we've talked about um, the way in which we can live together as a society. We've looked at the issue of our Indigenous peoples who were not front and center of any discussions uh, then. And uh, with the situation of women, uh, we've moved so far in the issue of violence against women and women's place in the society. So we've seen a lot of um, a lot of policy directions uh, by um, by legislative by legislation. We've seen a number of corporate bodies and and people in leadership taking responsibility for some of the things in the workplace and the marketplace. So we've moved. We've moved uh, somewhat. We're not there yet, and I keep saying it's a work in progress. Yeah, absolutely. One step at a time in giant leaps, it lets hope. So would you give us an idea of how important the many past contributions by black Canadians have been when shaping Canada's heritage and identity, and that would be in the past, but also as we move forward. There are such incredible stories and, and feats of incredible uh, courage and, and commitment that a lot of people don't know and may not be taught in their history classes in school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I talk about that all the time, having been an elementary uh, school teacher, vice principal, principal, etc., that there were no curriculum modules that talked about indigenous people. I, we taught nothing about land claims. We taught, we taught, we taught nothing about um, treaties and rights and uh, anything about residential schools. We taught nothing about the history of African Canadians and the percentage of African Canadians uh, in our country and the contributions that they've been making. And uh, there is um really wide um things that were left out as it were and i keep saying if there was anything it was always a footnote or uh, something along the margin but not the story that needed to be told and so i'm so happy that this black history month theme is our stories to tell because I think we have to tell our stories. I have to know your stories. You have to understand my stories. And so the, the issue of, um, of past wrongs, uh, like uh, slavery and, uh, and uh, not providing um, people, for example, the Africville story, um, the story of um, promised lands that were not, um, were not given, um, the issue of um, black Canadians, no matter what 
struggling and fighting to um, or, or to be fighters and supporters of Canada. You know, the, the number two battalion, and we've been talking about those uh, those men who had to black men who had to form their own because the, the you know the, they were not allowed to be part of Canada's uh, military. There was just so much. And when we go back in the history, from and we can go back to 1603 with um, the Matthew de Costa with Champlain, and and we can come all along the way. We can talk about the Caribbean and um, and the Canada. Uh, Canada was ceded uh, to Britain um, at the same time as my own island, uh, Grenada, in yeah. 1783. So we have a wide, wide history. Atlantic Canada, trade with the Caribbean, send them the rum. We'll um, send them the codfish. We'll send you the rum. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so there, we've had long relationships, and we have long lists of Canadians who've made their contribution. And when I talk in schools and other places, I keep saying, we're talking about Black History Month in Canada, because so often... When, um, and I said the other day, when people go to black Canadians or black um, um, African Canadians or whatever, whatever they put in, Dr. Google comes up with all these American names. Mm-hmm. And I should say we have so many, you know, whether it's the Oscar Peterson, whether it's the Bromley Armstrong. Or Jean Augustine. The, <laughs> you know, and on and on. I know young people need to know yeah. those stories. So let me ask you this. What do we learn from the past that might help us change the future? Well, we have to be, from the past, uh, when we look at the issue of reconciliation, when we talk about reparations, when we talk about uh, knowing and uh, apologies and all those things that have been occurring in our society. You look at all the, the past wrongs, they teach us. Yeah. And they, they, they teach us that there is a basic humanity that we all need to, <laughs> uh, to recognize. We also see Canadian society as a society where, you know, that, where uh, we stress, and that's our strength, you say, multiculturalism is our strength, diversity is our strength, and that um, we need to respect on the basis of, um, of all the characteristics that people bring uh, to the table. So I think there are lessons that we've learned. We've seen difficulties, we've seen and we have the stats that show who are at the bottom of the ladder, as it was. Uh, COVID pointed out who the essential workers were at the time when many of us were cloistering ourselves in our homes and, our, and in our apartments. The essential workers, if you really look, who are the faces of those essential workers? Yeah. And yeah. so we realize that we have a society that's built on and, and uh, on diversity, a society where we proclaim to the world you know, that, um, that we are diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi, you know, et cetera, society. And if we have to do all of that, it's important for us to recognize our strengths, yeah. to recognize that we, there are past wrongs, and to begin to work in a hopeful way um, that we could um, make progress as a society, that we could respect each other and we could begin to build that inclusive society that we were all talking about. You know, Jean Augustine, so many firsts for you. You lead by example, so many accomplishments. First black Canadian woman to be elected to parliament and appointed to cabinet. First ever fairness commissioner for the Ontario government. An unwavering commitment to diversity, equality, inclusion, as you've mentioned, human rights and accessibility. And the driving force behind the Jean Augustine Center for Young Women's Empowerment, just to name a few. May I ask you this? What is your message to all Canadians listening to you right now? I would say, let us be the positive, hopeful people that we are. Let us recognize the past wrongs in our society that we have to do something about. Let us see, and we've been doing this now throughout the land acknowledging, recognizing the land on which, uh, you know, we build our careers and we build our families and whatnot. 
that those that the indigenous people and their generosity allowed us. Uh, let us recognize uh, the waves of immigrants who joined us in this society and, uh, and, the, and the firm, the strength and the firm, what they brought to make our society the dynamic society it is, the envy of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, let us continue to respect each other, be hopeful, uh, no done with Islamophobia or racism or anti-black racism, all of those negative things. Let us begin to build a society where our young people can develop their skills and talents and abilities and make a very strong, inclusive society that, as I said earlier, is the envy of the world. Thank you. Thank you, Jean Augustine, for all you have done and have yet to do. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Well, thank you so much, Anne, and you keep up the good work. Well, I as I say, you lead by example, so you're amazing. Thank you, Jean, for everything. Right. Okay. <laughs> Take thank good you. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Next, how corporate culture is creating a more inclusive workplace. Shaliza Backus with that story. We are well into Black History Month and many organizations will commit or recommit to internal diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI efforts. These types of initiatives are important year round and long term impact requires education and commitment from senior leadership and organizational leaders. I'm joined by Cinnamon Clark, practice lead of DEI services at McLean & Company. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. All right, Cinnamon, let's start off with why you consider education as a critical component of DEI. Absolutely. How are you going to progress as a human or society if you are not aware of the history of why you're where you're at? We do training on everything. We have sexual harassment training every single year. And have we eradicated sexual harassment? We absolutely have not. And so it's important to understand that the continuous uh, education and awareness piece is essential to moving forward and not repeating the uh, mistakes of the past. Yeah, definitely. So as a business looking towards approaching DEI education and want to make themselves more aware of how to be more inclusive, how would they do that? I think it's absolutely the organization's responsibility to equip the employees with the language around DEI for that organization. You should treat DEI as you treat safety. If people need boots, you give them boots. If they need, you know, head protection, you give them that. And so I think it's absolutely the organization's responsibility to have a common language around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I also think the second piece of that is the onus is also on the individuals. Individual education is equally important. And so we have to realize what our own blind spots are, where there are gaps between where we are and where we should be and so on. And so you know, it's important for us to know where we are and have our own situational awareness, excuse me, around DEI. And also with the organization, if you want it to be sustainable, you have to create an environment of a continuous learner, a growth mindset. And a lot of what people see comes from social media these days. And we have to avoid that because you can create your own reality on social media. I could make up anything and socialize it and people believe it to be the truth. And so it's important to not cancel history, not, you know, try to erase the bad things that make us uncomfortable about our history, but to grow from that, to do better. And, you know, to know better, you have to do better, right? Just because it makes us uncomfortable doesn't mean that we can't grow from it. And that education, oftentimes when we start to reveal parts of ourselves that are not so pretty or things that, you know, that makes us uncomfortable, but there's growth in that discomfort. So lean into it. It's okay to mess up. It's a process of learning and unlearning, right? And that unlearning could be from last week right? Mm -hmm. Because the space continues to evolve. And as humans with a growth mindset, you can continue to evolve also. Always think intent versus impact. Honestly, this has been such an enlightening conversation. I really could talk to you about this all day. And I hope that this conversation will help those in higher positions to make the workplace more inclusive for all. Last but not least, if our listeners want some more information on you and McLean & Company, where can we go? Absolutely. You can check out the McLean & Company website. And I'm also on LinkedIn. So please feel free. Cinnamon Clark, she, her, hers. And I am the practice lead for all things diversity, equity and inclusion services at McLean & Company. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
celebration of local artists now. Christina Lavecchia with the debut of Heavenly. Richmond Hill native and three-time cancer survivor Taimaz Bugbani joins me to share his story of strength and determination. Taimaz hopes to inspire others through his music and new album, Heavenly. Taimaz, thank you for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me on. You were very young when you learned about your cancer diagnosis. At just 11 years old, you were told you had leukemia. You're 24 now. Can you take us back to 11-year-old Taimaz? Tell us a bit about what you enjoy to do and how you came to learn about your diagnosis. So young Taimaz only had one thing on his mind, and that was becoming a professional soccer player. So, And I think that's one of the main things that gave me strength to overcome everything that I did. And uh, yeah, at that time, it was basically just soccer, soccer, soccer. You were 11 when you learned about your diagnosis. How did you come to learn about it um, at just such a young age? So I was always one of the most fit players on the team. And then my mom, just uh, mother's instinct, started to notice. I started to maybe fall behind a little bit of the fitness drills and just took me for a regular checkup. I had a lot of bruises, but I thought I was an active kid. And the bruises were just regular. And then I noticed uh, my doctor told me to go straight to sick kids emergency. I, was like, I had like no blood cells in my body at that point. Between the ages of 14 and 16, the cancer came back for a second and third time. Can you tell us a bit about that time and what got you through it? So, like how I said earlier, was uh, the soccer, like the goal to get back on the field and the mindset in that and the training I did for that was a big factor in uh, helping me stay mentally strong with everything I was dealing with. And actually only 10 months after my first bone marrow transplant and uh, second battle with leukemia, I moved alone at 15 to Malaga, Spain, to go on trials with professional clubs. But unfortunately, only a month and a half in, I ended up starting to notice bruises again on my body, and I had to go straight back to the hospital. Despite the tribulations of the past 10 years, you have released a new album, which I am very excited to share with our listeners. It's called Heavenly. Can you tell us a bit about the album and the tracks? Yeah, so this album is basically trying to share my life through it. That's how the music came to me and, uh, while I was going through everything in my life and uh, as a way to express myself. And the heavenly is basically, to me, is about serenity. It's about accepting the things that cannot change and finding peace. So that's why even in the title track, Heavenly, I say, time was running out, they were talking too soon. Then the boy blew up, now they're talking blue moon. I was just a little baby with something to prove. If you never give up, then you never can lose. And it's just like with this mindset and these lyrics, I'm just trying to share it with the world. Heavenly, yeah, heaven sent. Got me looking for a change because I'm trying to make sense. When it caught me out the frame, so I had to switch the lens. When it put me in the game, it ain't been the same since. I- One of your latest releases is called Dive Deep. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so basically Dive Deep, like how the course says, resurface when it's hard to breathe. It's about no matter what, we might dive deep into our problems. It's about resurfacing. It's about reemerging and not letting that hold you down and coming out out of all the trials and tribulations in your life. Were you always interested in music, or did that come during your treatments and uh, during your diagnoses? Like, I always liked music. Like, I would work out and I play my music to sports and listen to the radio on the way to practice, but it's just my whole life with soccer, I just didn't have the time to even tap into anything else. My other passions. Who are your biggest music influences? Who are you listening to now? Um, a couple of them from the city, I would say, like, Corey Lane, Drake, J. Cole, little baby. Hoping for future collaborations, maybe? We're putting it out there? Good vibes? 100%. We got to put it in the universe if we want to get it. It's called manifestation, right? And um, you have a couple of first-time performances coming up. Did you want to tell us about those? Yeah, so I'm actually very excited. I just did a CTV News interview, and in that interview, I mentioned how I would love to do a benefit concert for sick kids because I did all my treatments there. And, like, I didn't know how I was going to do it at the time, but, like, how we just said manifestation, I threw it out in the world, and I reached out, and now I'm performing at the Ritz-Carlton at the end of the month, at February 24th, in, at the Sickest Gala. And um, did you break a, a record recently at a Raptors game? Did you want to tell us about that? Oh, yeah. So, um, that's another foundation, and I did a Hall & Blurview, which is a 
I made it a personal goal to make people more aware of it because this is the biggest physical rehab center for children with disabilities in Canada. They're doing the most uh, research for people with disabilities in all of almost the world. They're, they're at that level. The foundation is called Kids for Kids, and we partnered with Pascal Siakam and Arkell, and we broke an actual Guinness World Record at halftime at the Raptors 905 for most people wearing a cape at the same time. Do you have any advice for kids or young people who are going through the same thing as you? This too shall pass. Use your strength to focus on the things that you can control because that's all you really can do in life. And just find something that you're passionate about and put your all into it. What's the best way for listeners to connect with you online and get their copy of your album, Heavenly? What's the best way they could do that? So um, there's only one time as out there. Just put T-Y-M-A-Z into any platform, Google, and it will pop up. My social media, mainly I'm on Instagram. If you want to follow my day-to-day and what I'm up to is Time has the same spelling, T-Y-N-A-Z, with the number nine behind it. And it's on all platforms. I promise you give my music a listen. It's going to stay in your rotation. Thank you, Time as for sharing your story with our listeners. And keep us updated on any new music. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And we can dive deep, yeah. Resurface when it's hard to breathe, yeah. Chosen so I know it's all on me. All on me. Found my purpose and I found me. All on me. And we can dive deep, yeah. Resurface when it's hard to breathe, yeah. Chosen so I know it's all on me. All on me. Found my purpose and I found me. Coming up, help for quake victims in Turkey and Syria. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our next couple of stories focus on the devastation following the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Tina Cortez first with Canada Helps. From now until the 22nd, the government of Canada will match donations from individuals to the earthquake in Turkey and Syria appeal from the Canadian Red Cross up to a maximum of $10 million. Nicole Dinesi is Senior Manager PR, Canada Helps and Unite for Change. Welcome to The Feed, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit more about the program? For sure. So at Canada Helps, we launch our crisis relief centre every time that there is a natural or humanitarian disaster. And this is something that we've been doing for the last 10 years. Um, And we've launched our crisis relief centre in response to the horrific earthquake that's happened in Turkey and Syria in order for Canadians to be able to go to a trusted organisation to browse different charities and send urgently needed relief to uh, the individuals on the ground. And that's what I wanted to ask you a bit more about. How do Canadians know that their donations are going to those who need it most? For sure. So at Canada Helps, we only list registered Canadian charities, and these are all organizations that um, have to meet the standards of the Canada Revenue Agency as registered organizations. So when you're making a donation to one of the charities that are listed on our website, you know that your dollars are going to organizations that are are accountable and reliable for uh, making that impact and, and you know acting on those funds. Um, we've listed a variety of different charities on our website. Um, right when you go to our homepage, on CanadaHelps.org, you'll see that there's a spot um, where we've listed, um, you know, where Canadians can go and browse that list of charities and see all of the different ways that they're able to make a donation and make an impact. Can you provide a few examples of what types of charities are on your website then? For sure. So on our page um, where Canadians can go and browse, we've listed organizations such as Shelterbox Canada and their entire mission, for example, is to provide shelter, urgently needed shelter um, after a crisis strikes when, of course, uh, when an earthquake strikes, you know, massive infrastructure, even homes are completely destroyed and uh, many people are often, you know, without that just basic human need. Um, So they provide sort of tents and other equipment in order to help um, protect individuals affected. We have organizations like UNICEF Canada, Save the Children Canada, very well-known organizations that are very specifically focused on supporting children after a crisis. 
And then there's other organizations, for example, like Help Age Canada. They're based um, in Canada and they support uh, senior citizens and other vulnerable communities after a crisis strikes oftentimes. So they're looking out for those communities specifically. And the last one I'll just also um, quickly mention is Global Medic. They often provide, they go into um, crisis um you know, situations all the time, and they provide very basic human necessities. For example, their family emergency kits where they provide water purification units, hygiene items, solar lights, really basic human needs. And we've heard many stories about online scams. How can Canadians be assured that their money is going to those who need it most? And how do they know that they have the correct website and that their donation is secure? Right. So at Canada Helps, one of the things we would suggest is going directly to CanadaHelps.org. Um, you know, if you, you know, um, and as you know that when we're, um, we list all the registered Canadian charities on our website that when you're on our site, you'll know that your donation is securely going to those organizations. Um, you know, if you're ever interested in learning more about a specific charity, um, reach out to that organization or if a charity ever approaches you, feel free to ask them questions about where their dollars will be going. How can they help? What is their track record? What, where are their finances? Even going, for example, to a charity's direct website, you'll often see that there are annual reports and financial statements and you can take a look to you know, learn and educate yourself in terms of where your dollars are going so you can ultimately feel comfortable making that donation. Um, but CanadaHelps.org, um, we've been, uh, or, you know, a, a very secure website um, for all Canadians to give. That's terrific. Thanks for your time today, Nicole. Thanks for having me. York Region residents are also doing their part in a big way. Jim Lang with a group from Richmond Hill. Well, obviously by now everyone has seen the videos, the photos, and read the stories and heard the stories about the aftermath of the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria and an organization doing something to step up and help based right here in Richmond Hill, the Turkish Community Heritage Centre of Canada. Thrilled to be speaking to their VP, Mehdi Yazar. Mehdi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And yourself? Oh, good, good. I, I can't even imagine for people in the Turkish community in the region and the GTHA to know they have family and friends in Turkey to see what happened. Uh, as we digest the aftermath, how is the local Turkish community coming to grips with the devastation of the earthquake? Well, there's great sadness, obviously. Uh, those of us who don't have family directly affected just are watching the images and just uh, crying inside. Um, the, the community has rallied remarkably uh, in uh, terms of gathering uh, goods for Turkey. So th that, you know, uh, just those images, of course, spur us on to act, uh, to donate either in money or in kind and our support. Uh, a lot of us are in touch uh, with the communities, uh, affected communities, and trying to understand the situation and see what we can do to help. It's been amazing to me to see that uh, average everyday Canadians with no connection to Turkey whatsoever have really stepped up to do anything they can to help. That must make you feel good. Oh, absolutely. We get hundreds of emails uh, from Canadians. How can we help? What can we do? Uh, it's been really, um, really heartwarming to experience that from our fellow Canadians. Now, if you want more information as a listener and wanted to help Meta and her organization, you can go to turkishcommunitycenter.org to get more information. Um, under normal circumstances, what does your organization do? Uh, we help, uh, mainly we help newcomers. We have a helpline uh, that uh, people can call to ask for help. We are an organization made up of volunteers, so we have no paid staff. We have a six member board and uh, you know dozens of volunteers working with us. We resource the helpline and uh, help people uh, with their request for resources for connection to the uh, newcomer uh, community. There are a lot of organizations in uh, uh, Ontario, thankfully, who help newcomers. And we translate and we connect and we try to understand the gaps um, that the community might be facing. We do a lot of community events to uh, 
both in terms of celebrations of our national days and in celebrating, uh, you know, Canadian events. And uh, a lot of uh, newcomers come here, of course, looking for jobs. We will do uh, career days, um, resume writing days, um, you know, try uh, understanding the legal system in Canada, uh, just for newcomers to become oriented, better oriented to, to Canada. And your organization, mate, is going to be more important than ever before because I know Justin Trudeau and the government have talked about fast-tracking immigration to displace people from Turkey. Um, so they're going to need your organization to help them assimilate to York Region, to Ontario, to Canada. Yes, we're trying to make sure that um, resources like Ontario Works, which is great, understand that we can do translation uh, for uh, Turkish-speaking people, help in that way uh, immediately. And then through our fundraising efforts, uh, make sure we get some resources, that extraordinary resources that might be needed to support people who are going to arrive here or are already on the way here. We've had some inquiries already of people intending to either um, join family here, that their paperwork is in place, or put paperwork in place to join their family here. Well, you're doing great work, Meta. I know all our listeners are really proud of you or your organization, TurkishCommunityCenter.org, the Turkish Community Heritage Center of Canada based in Richmond Hill. Meta, thank you so much. Uh, um, you have touched the hearts and minds of a lot of people listening and want to do something to help. So please go to the website. Whatever help you can give is greatly appreciated. And thank you for joining us to shine a light in this situation. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Take care. Next on the feed, the details of the flying objects, the decision to shoot them down, and questions which still remain. Here's Kevin Frankish. What the heck is going on over our heads? Over the past couple of weeks, several UAPs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, sounds so much better than UFOs, doesn't it? They have been spotted over Canadian and American airspace. One was identified as a Chinese spy balloon, the others still being examined Retired Major General Scott Clancy of the Canadian Air Force was the former NORAD Director of Operations and former Deputy Commander of the Alaskan NORAD region. I spoke with him about these UAPs, and he warns they could be a test. Hello, General. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So here we are. This seems to be happening a lot more with more regularity right now, but is this really something that has just been happening over our heads for quite a while? It's just being taken note of more now by the public? No, I think it's both. I think that uh, we have adjusted our sensors to be able to pick up and identify these objects, especially, you know, when pertain to these last three, and uh, identify that they are risks and safety to the safety of flight so that we can take appropriate action. And uh, at the same time, uh, you know, events like this have occurred in NORAD's history in the past, and I think there's been an ongoing response from NORAD to respond to unidentified tracks, identify them, and then attempt to ascertain whether or not they are a, a threat from you know, an old-school military perspective or, or risks to the safety of flight, um, which you see from the last three that have been brought down. There has been um, some uh, chastisement of the Canadian Air Force that perhaps we dropped the ball on this one. Is there any reason for us to be concerned that the uh, although the Canadian military was involved uh, flying alongside the, the uh, American military jets, uh, it was they who, who did the splash? So I don't think so at all. Uh, I would think the exact opposite, and, and here's why. You know, the decision as to which asset is used to be able to engage a target has to do with a lot of tactical things, some of which is mere geography. So if Canada was monitoring those balloons or objects for maybe hours, it might have been that the American assets were the only ones in a geographic position due to how much time on station or whatever else it because of the NORAD agreement, we share forces back and forth across the border, and it doesn't matter whether it's an American or a Canadian asset. So, so for example, for the asset shut down, uh, you know, north of the North Slope in Alaska, it's not that far away from the Canadian border. And if a Canadian CF-18 had been in the best position to take that shot, 
that then, you know, the Alaska NORAD region would have been transferred command of that and, and they would have used that Canadian asset as long as the Canadian authorities acquiesced to it. So I actually don't think that. I think what everybody should say is, wow, the Canadian and military authorities work in concert so slickly together that it really doesn't matter which force was involved or, or who was ordering it. It's done together in a fashion that exercises at once the sovereignty of the nation, which the airspace is over top of it, while enabling the use of both forces, uh, both nations' forces. We should also point out, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that essentially when it comes to tracking the airspace over Canada and over the United States, we see what the Americans see. The Americans see what we see because we monitor it jointly. Absolutely. Uh, so not, not only that, but we also command the forces over top of it jointly. So everybody's become aware that, you know, it's General Van Erk, who's uh, my former commander, as a matter of fact, is the commander down in Colorado Springs. But he has a Canadian deputy, the three-star general, happens to be Lieutenant General Alain Peltier right now. And, uh, you know, in the Canadian NORAD region, which would have been the uh, headquarters responsible for gathering the information and executing on that shootdown, uh, it's a Canadian general that's there. But... If that Canadian general is out visiting his forces, which he often is, it's the American deputy in Winnipeg that would be commanding those NORAD forces. The same way that I was the deputy commander up in Alaska, and often my commander was, was gone, I was the individual that was ordering American forces around. So you can kind of see the ubiquitous nature of that. To put a finer point on this, and a historic point, on the morning of 9-11, it was a Canadian that was directing forces in NORAD it was a Canadian that was directing forces around the continental NORAD region, south of the border where all the action was. And it was an American in the Canadian NORAD region up here that were in command on that, on that morning. All right. Uh, retired Major General Scott Clancy, thank you so much for this. In fact, you have a, a book on leadership and coaching coming out very soon. I do. Uh, hopefully out in the spring. Um, and uh, it, it's all about my experiences in leading and how to lead and develop coaching spirit amongst leaders to, to make sure that our teams uh, have the, the best out of our leaders. Uh, we could use more of that these uh, days. Thank you very much, sir. You have a wonderful day. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.